0: All right. So good to see you this morning. I I, I want to say this. During this COVID hurricane, whatever is going on in this world in the last year, two years, whatever. So many churches, even in this church, have seen a, a declination, a decreasing in attendance and in consistency. This class has been the exception, and that is because the Holy Spirit has put in your hearts a desire to know the Word of God in a better way, to learn, to come together, to listen to an old man. That's an anointing in itself for you to be able to sit here and listen. So I I just want to say, for those of you who are here this morning, for those of you who are television land, and for those of you who are normally here but you didn't get here for one reason or another, we'll find out what's going on. Uh, Thank you so much for being consistent and not honoring Peter Davidson. Mm -hmm. Honoring the Holy Spirit. Amen. Honoring the Holy Spirit. Who is, always has been and always will be the teacher of his people. Remember, Jesus said, I will give you another comforter, counselor, teacher to be with you. Remember that? He is our teacher. So I want to begin by saying, again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Uh, It is a huge joy to me to see each one of you all the time. And, you know, I, I don't always do it really well Hey, Lisa, I didn't see you. Why did you sneak in here? I didn't see you, girl. <laughs> and I know it always doesn't come across well, but I have a passion that none of you ever miss, ever miss. You know, I am. I've missed you. I, I really do. I genuinely do miss you. I'm not just saying that to say it. I, I really do. I miss each one of you when you're not here. So thank you for being here. So let's continue this morning. Remember, we started off this study with the study of Hebrews. Remember the Hebrew issue. The Hebrews, because of the circumstances politically, uh, financially, relationally, religiously, etc., were being pressured to leave Christianity because of their faith in Christ. And to go back into Judaism, these are Jewish Christians for the most part. For the most part. And so the writer of Hebrews, of course the Holy Spirit is the real writer, tells us about 13 or 15 times, depending on how you count the word, Jesus is better. Better. And I won't go back and redo the the book. So just as we begin this morning to remember, why is Jesus better? Why is Jesus better for me, for you? Why? Two reasons. Because simultaneously and equally, he is the son of God and he is the son of man. Simultaneously and equally, he is the divine man. Simultaneously and equally, because of who he is in himself as the Son and who he has become as the man Jesus. This is the reason he is better. Amen? Therefore, because of who he is, What he does is effective because of who he is. His entire ministry is effective in saving his people. And so this morning we're continuing to look at Psalm chapter 2, the second Psalm, verses this morning, 7 through 9, actually probably only verse 7. And we're looking for the scriptural verification for John 3.16. Remember, for God so loved the world that he gave his Monogamous weas, his unique son, his unique son. He gave his unique son. And so we're looking, where did John get this idea, get this truth, this revelation that Jesus is God's unique son? It didn't come to John in a vacuum. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit says, This is my son, he is my personal son in a vacuum. Yes, the Holy Spirit revealed that to John as he did to each of the apostles and the disciples and the members of the new church, the new testament church. But it wasn't done in a vacuum. It was done within the context of what God had already been saying over the thousands of years out of the old testament. And so what we've said before is God doesn't speak in a vacuum giving us information or revelation today that has never been given in any form or fashion hinted shadows types or whatever he always tells us that which he he elucidates enlarges reveals in a better or more full way certainly but that which he's already given to us and where is that which he's already given to us in the pages of the tanakh what we call the old testament and so we've been going back to some of the passages of the Old Testament. You remember the last week in Psalm 2, 1 through 6, the, the, it proclaims there is the, the nations are rising up against God. You Remember, why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Remember that. And the Lord sits and laughs them, the scoff, and he says, I have installed my king on, upon Zion. You remember that? He says, what they're doing is futile. Well, remember, those verses, and in fact, the whole psalm, is mostly about the reign of God's anointed king over his people. That's the issue in Psalm 2. God has set a king upon the earth who will deal with the rebellion of the nations and who will establish his kingdom upon the earth. That's what Psalm 2 is all about. So we've already seen that King David, you remember, is the type of this promised king. Remember what we said, the Bible, the Old Testament is filled with types, foreshadows, hints, people and events and circumstances that are real in that context, but that are more than just the context of what's happening at that moment, but they are happening at that moment for the purpose of telling us something or someone that is to come. All of these activities at the moment are real. Things are really going on. But they're going on for the purpose of not just going on at that moment, but they are going on in order, as God uses them to do what? Point to one man, just one man, and his ministry, everything. And so David is a type. Of this king. Because remember Psalm 2 is written by David and he is quoting here and it's about him. At least the context immediately is about him. But it's larger than David. So let's re- make sure we get that. So he is the type of this promised king. Remember in 1 Samuel 16.3, uh, David is anointed as God's, as God's king by Samuel. You Remember that. And his anointing prefigures or is a type or is a statement of the king who will come upon the earth, whom God himself, through the agency of John the Baptist, will anoint as God's king upon the earth. Remember that. So David is really anointed. It really happens. It's about David. But it's not about David in and of himself completely. It is about David as a fulfillment, as a type of him who is coming. So David is the type and Jesus is the anti-type, the fulfillment, the type and then the fulfillment. You remember then in 2 Samuel 2 and then also in 2 Samuel 5, David is installed as king. First over Judah, remember he's from the tribe of Judah. And then over the rest of the house of Israel, they all come together a little while later. So he's anointed as king in Hebron over Judah, and then later on over the rest of the nation over Israel. So this king is installed. David is actually installed as the king. The king in Psalm 2 is installed. I have in verse 6, I have what? Installed my king upon Zion. So we also remember that in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14, we've gone through all of these. That the Lord promised to install a king from one of his sons of David who would reign over an everlasting kingdom. You remember that? Let me read it to you. I will raise up your... Now, this is the Holy Spirit speaking to David. I will raise up your descendant. Now, the word descendant in the Hebrew is seed. I will raise up your seed. Now, why is that significant? What do you see in the word seed there or descendant if you're going to use the word descendant? We're not saying descendant is wrong. I just prefer the word seed because in Genesis 3.15, what does the Bible say? The seed, the woman, remember, the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman will crush Satan as to his heel. Although Satan will, I'm sorry, crush Satan's head, although Satan will crush the heel or wound the heel of this man. This is the Messiah who is promised, the seed. I will raise up your seed after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, fine. This is an earthly king. This is, you know, David, you're going to have a son. What was his name? Solomon. And he's going to be king of a kingdom. Okay, well, that's understandable. David's looking for that. He shall build a house for my name. Okay, fine. He's going to build the temple, the house of God, correct? And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Oh, wait a minute, that's, that's a little odd. How can Solomon sit on the throne forever? So we begin to stretch the, the understanding here. We begin to take the unlimited, immediate understanding that, David, you're going to have a son one day. His name is Solomon, and he's going to sit on your throne. And, but his throne is going to be an everlasting throne. Wait, we're beginning to stretch it now beyond David or beyond Solomon to someone else. Then after that, then in verse 14, we read the unique relationship. There is a renew, renew, unique relationship between this king and Yahweh, whom he will establish. What is that relationship? Look at verse 14. I think it's in your notes. I'm not sure what's in your notes and what isn't. But verse 14 says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me, a son to me. Now, so we begin to all of a sudden say this. Yahweh is saying that this king is just not going to be another mere man, but it's going to be his son. He's going to be my son. Well, that's David is a son of God. But he won't be the son of God. He is a son of God. Son, remember, the word we ask in the Greek has to do not as it does have to do, obviously, with physical, you know, procreation. But it also has to do, and in many, many places, it not only has to do with that, but it also has to do with a relationship. A son is a relational term in the Hebrew or in the Greek. One who images the father. One who is like the same nature as the one who is called the father. And so I will be a son. That This king enjoys the unique relationship with God that no other person can have. This king is going to be the most unique king upon whoever sat on the throne. Why? Because this king is going to have a relationship and a connection with God that no other person can have. This king is of the same nature of his God, of his father. You see, to beget a human begets a human. And so when a father begets a child, that child is of the same nature of the father, human, correct? Now, I know that some of you think that the little children that are born are beasts. You know, that, that this can't be my child because he acts in such and such way or whatever. But the child is really a human. The child has a human nature to create something when you create something, you do not impart your nature to that something. Do you see that? Something which is created is not does not have the transmittal of the nature of the creator. So when God says, my son, he's talking about someone who has the same nature as the father. The same nature as the father. And this truth is what we're reading in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 9. So let me read it. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. Now, remember, this is written by David, and it is written and given him probably after he has received this revelation in Second Samuel seven about a king who will sit on the throne, and he will be the, God will be a father to him, and he will be a son to the father. I will surely decree, tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, "Now, this is the king speaking. This is the king who is on has been installed." You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, do we see without doing anything else with that passage that this passage is not speaking about a mere man? Do we see that? This passage is speaking about someone who is so much more than just another king who sits on the throne. Verse 7, I will surely tell her tell the decree of Yahweh, you are my son. These words that Yahweh speaks to David echo the promise that the Davidic king will be his own son. Remember 2 Samuel 7:14. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. In verse 7 of Psalm 2, you hear an echo of that. You hear, if you would, a reiteration, an explanation of that. David is the earthly type, as we said, of the coming divine king who will be a man after God's own heart to build a house for God. Remember that? You've heard of that. David is a man after God's own heart. So this king is the one who fulfills God's promise to David that one of his descendants, one of his seed, will be the eschatological king. Now, why did I use the word eschatological? Do you remember what that word means, eschatology? Eschatology is the study of last things. Eschatology is the study of that time frame when all of the promises and the, uh, uh, the uh, prophecies of God are fulfilled. That's what eschatology is. It's about the last days, the return of Christ, the setting up of the kingdom of God on earth, the new heavens and the new earth. That's eschatology, the study of all of those events, everything that fulfills all of God's promises and all of God's prophecies concerning his kingdom, his people, his relationship with this king. So this king is the one who fulfills God's promise to David that one of his descendants will be the eschatological king. Why? Why is he the fulfillment? Because he's God's own son in a way that no other man is. No other person. How many of us know that generically we are called the children of God? Now, today, unfortunately, because of the The what do you call it? The uh, the sexist movement and the uh, uh, not not ethnic uh, the gender stuff, whatever, to say we are sons of God. Unfortunately, even in the church, the women begin to feel what? We're left out. We're left out. Why? Because we didn't say daughters. Well, the Bible doesn't do that. It uses the word sons as a generic word that encapsulates both men and women, male and female. So we don't want to fall into the trap of having to think that we need to make sure that we rewrite the Bible. This is, this is how the Bible works. This is how it, it explains things, although we do give into some of that. And to say that all of us who are called sons or daughters of God, we are all sons and daughters of God. Why? Why? Because Jesus Christ is our elder Brother. And he is the son. So we are sons and daughters of God through our having been born again by the Holy Spirit into the kingdom of God. And we are now relationally, relationally sons of God. But we're not ontologically sons of God. Do you know what I just said? We're not ontologically sons of God. We are not personal Sons of God in the way Jesus is. Jesus is of the same nature of God. He is ontologically a son of God. We are not that way. We have become partakers of the nature of God. But we do not have the nature of God in the same way that Jesus is of the very same essence of God himself. We are not that. So we are related to God as it were by what? Ephesians chapter 1, verses, what is it, 6, by adoption. So we're not ontologically sons of God. We are relationally the children of God. But this son will be ontologically related to God, one with God as his father. In saying you, my son, Yahweh is saying that this king is not a creature, but is of his own divine, eternal nature. see, all other the son's all of us are created in the image of god correct all of us are created in the image of god but this man is god's own son because what he is the image of the invisible god remember what colossians 1:15 says he is the image of the invisible god we are created in the image of god we have the image of god given to us as a gift It's not indigenous in us. In other words, we don't have it intrinsically because of who we are. We have the image of God stamped on us because of whose we are. Correct? Whose we are. Jesus is the image of God because of who he is. Do we see the difference? Can we see the difference? And so, because he is the image of God, he is the only one, only man who can ever say, This is my son. Because he is of the same essence and nature as God himself is. Now, let me continue and talk about this. I want to skip a little bit. Today I have begotten you. Do you see where I am in your notes? Okay. Before we look at the word today which we'll do next time, we want to look at the word I have begotten you. I want to go back over the ground a little bit and then just clarify a couple of things. In lesson four, you remember, we learned that the word begotten is not a word about procreation. It's a word that has to do with a uniqueness or one-of-a-kind class. Now, this is extremely important because if Jesus were physically begotten, if Christ the Son was physically begotten, then he is a creature. He came into existence at a particular time by the will of God himself. And therefore, if he is created by God, he does not have the essence of God. Do we see that? If Jesus is a created being, if Christ, if the Son of God is a created being, he cannot be in himself eternal. Are we with me today? Are you seeing this? Why? Because he began at a certain time. And so all of a sudden we begin to see there are severe restrictions as to who this one is. So he is the son of God. He was begotten. But what does it mean? The clearest example of this is probably Philemon 10. You remember Philemon is that little letter that Paul wrote to this uh, friend of his, Philemon, who lived in Colossae. Colossians, remember Colossi, and he had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away in some kind of way with the Holy Spirit leading, came under the ministry of Paul, the apostle. Onesimus heard the gospel that Paul was preaching and ministering and, and, um, and uh, living, and what happened? Onesimus was saved. Onesimus was saved through the preaching and the ministry of the gospel under the hand, under the anointing and the leadership of Paul, the apostle. So listen to what Paul says in in Philippians, um, Philemon 10. He says, I'm sending Onesimus back to you, right? Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. Now, if the word begotten means birthed, that means Paul became the physical daddy of Onesimus. Do we see it? He became the physical daddy of Onesimus. But it doesn't mean created or birthed. It's the wrong word. It means a class, a kind, a uniqueness, a role, a distinction. So, Paul uses the word begotten here to show that Onesimus now has a new status. What is his new status? In Christ. He has a new role. What is his new role? In Christ, because he's saved. Paul is pointing, I have begotten Onesimus, to say that because of the gospel that I have preached, the Holy Spirit has saved Onesimus. And so I am now telling you that this man who was once not saved, he is now saved. He has a new role in life. He has a new status. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. And his new status is as a beloved brother, especially to me in verse 16. What is his new status? He's a beloved brother. So Paul's not talking about being birthed physically. He's talking about Onesimus becoming or coming into, rather, a new role, a new status, a new function. Therefore, Paul now relates to Onesimus according to his new status. And he's asking Philemon, Philemon, relate to on not just the slave who you know took some of your stuff and ran away or whatever but relate to him as you would relate to me as a brother in christ it's really a most wonderful letter i think it's what 24 verses long so it's the most wonderful letter about restoration of of, uh, of uh, friendship and fellowship and when you've been wrong uh, here's how to handle that forgiveness and so on it's really very nice it's a very nice letter So the use of begotten in this particular verse is not about the origin of the person of the son of God. But it's about the ministry of the son of God as God's king upon the earth. So when the Lord says in verse 7 of Psalm 2, today I have begotten you. He said today I have given to my eternal son a new status, a status he didn't have before. I've given him a role that he didn't have before, at least not in a time frame, you see. I've given him a new ministry that he didn't have before in fulfillment of my eternal purpose. And what is that? He will be birthed into the world as a man who will be my king, my royal representative upon the earth. Why is that important? Because God in his creation purpose gave Adam and Eve, especially to Adam because he was the head of the race. And Eve was to walk along with that in cooperation and in helping of that. He gave to Adam the role of king. Remember in verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1. He says what? Go out and what? Rule over the earth. Take dominion. Do you remember those words rule and dominion? Those are kingly terms. And Adam failed in that. He repudiated God's purpose. Let's make sure we get it all tied together. So the Lord says, look, I am going to send my king upon the earth. I will have my way. See, our disobedience cannot overcome God's will. Can you remember that? Can you remember that? Your disobedience. Has anyone disobeyed God this week? Your disobedience does not overcome God's will. It does not take God by surprise. It does not throw him into a Twitter. It has nothing to do with being continually forever forgiven. That's not what's happening here. Our disobedience certainly needs to be dealt with as far as our sanctification and correction and education and discipline and, and you know, whatever is called, um, called for. But it has nothing to do with our permanent relationship with this God who has forgiven us of all sin at the cross of Christ. Amen. We are a forgiven people. So that means this. If anyone is caught sinning, any believer is caught sinning, what should be the very first response of another believer? How should we relate to that If you I'm gonna use the word fallen, just the sin is falling, right? Right? So let me use the word fallen here. Because I'm not going to categorize how bad the sin was or whatever. Any person who has fallen for sin, what should be every brother and sister's first response to that believer? What? You're forgiven. Remind them of this. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. You and I are still brother and sister in Christ. God still loves you and will never stop loving you. So let's make sure we don't add to guilt and to shame. But let's make sure we take away the burden that Satan wants to lay on a believer through these false lies. False lies? These lies of guilting. You're bad. You shouldn't be. You know, all of that stuff. Condemnation. Let's make sure, whether physically, relationally, however, we give that other believer a big, brotherly, sisterly hug in the faith. Amen? That's what that person needs first. Correct? Are you with me today? That's what he or she needs first. You need that. Because we are part of the restorative activity and work of the Lord Jesus. Because we are the body of Christ. And we are called to reach out and restore one another. Even as we have been restored by Christ himself through the Holy Spirit. Correct? So if there's any in any of us withholding of forgiveness. Or if there's anything in any of us of resentment, of anger, of irritation, of frustration about the sinful activities of another member of the body of Christ. That's Satan. And you're sinning along with the brother whom you are having a problem with. And in fact, God may have more of a problem with you than he does the other brother. Forgiveness. Isn't it amazing how much we've been forgiven? So what is this? What is the? Why has God begotten the son this day to become the king? So that we could be forever restored to God. As father. So we could be related to God to become as Second Peter 1.4 says, partakers of the divine nature. Amen? See, this is the, the bottom line for us, for us as believers, is this word forgiven. Forgiven. Jesus came to redeem us unto God for the purpose of God being glorified in us. And the me- mechanics of that, if you would, be Through the shedding of his blood. For one purpose. That all. How many? All. How many? Can't hear you. All. How many? All our sin. May be completely and forever forgiven. So you remember what Jeremiah 31. Is it verse 31 or 34? Their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. It is not a, it, an issue of God, I just can't remember, did they do something wrong or not? I just, I, I don't know. He remembers clearly, but he doesn't remember them against us. Because he's put it on the back of his son. And Jesus died. Therefore, how forgiven are we? How forgiven? Even more than that. And for how long? Even longer than that. Amen. Why did we need a king upon the earth? Why did he need to become the son of God? I'm sorry. Why was the son of God needing to become this king? Because sin is a... It is an attack against the very nature of God himself. And in order for that sin to be forgiven by God himself, God sends someone of himself, his own son, one of the persons of the Trinity, who is of the same nature as the Father, in order to himself bear this sin. And to accept upon himself the consequences of the wrath of God because of our sin in his own body. So that we could be declared in Christ forgiven. Amen. And when we are forgiven, we are forgiven in order that the Holy Spirit is given to us and gives to us the very relational nature we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Remember, in Second Corinthians 5.21. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Forgiveness. Do you need to forgive yourself? Should you forgive yourself? Answer me. No. You cannot forgive yourself. People say, we need to forgive ourselves first. Nope. Where is it in the Bible that says that you can't forgive yourself because true forgiveness means shedding of blood and dying. You are forgiven. So it's not so much that I forgive myself, but I recognize and accept and rejoice in the total, absolute, forever forgiveness that I have in Christ because of his shed blood. Amen. So if you hear people say forgive yourself or you try to please stop that. That's false theology. It's not good. Why? Because of me doing something. Me doing something. Don't just see it? I'm doing something to make myself better. No. It's a work of the flesh. It's a deception of the enemy. So this is where we are, and we'll see you next week.